We want to be a, a church that is set apart and sanctified by you. Lord, both all together and as individuals, would you sanctify us completely by the washing and the renewal of the word? Father, would you keep our whole spirit and soul and body blameless as we await your return? God, call us. You have called us. God, you are faithful. You're the one who does this. We ask you to do this in Christ this morning. He is your word. He is your truth. He is our life. And only you will surely do this. So, Lord, we trust you. We ask you to do this. Only you can do this this morning. Be with us now as we come to your scriptures. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. I, my sermon text this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to open your Bible there. 1 Corinthians 6, and we're going to focus specifically on verse 12. Now, outside of the four Gospels, I have preached more sermons from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians than any other book, or at least a cursory looking through all of my sermon manuscripts. I'm pretty sure that that is true. Outside of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 1 Corinthians takes the cake, and I preached three sermons on this specific reading. So I think this is a text that I've reflected on more than any others, which three sermons, you guys know, that's like baby, that's like baby uh, preacher Okay, I've, I've been preaching for just a few years now, and I preached this text three times. Um, but it's something I preached a lot. But this morning, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do from this pulpit. I'm going to preach a topical sermon, okay? That's, that's risky, I know. It's a topical sermon uh, launching in from this verse, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. But we're going to focus specifically on the top, talk, topic of freedom. Freedom. What does freedom mean? Uh, and we're going to get into some pretty deep waters theologically. We're going to get into uh, the doctrine of impassibility and other things like that. Okay, so please bear with me. I've been praying over you and over this. And hopefully uh, I've come up out on the other side of complexity this morning. So freedom isn't in our sermon text. That word is not in verse 12 of chapter 6. It's actually not even used in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. The first time and the only time he uses this word freedom is in his second letter to the Corinthians. You guys are familiar probably with that text where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is freedom, right? Okay, so, uh, but the, the debate over freedom, and this is part of what I'm going to be arguing a little bit this morning, is, is the foundation. What, what is the meaning of freedom in Christ? It's the foundation of the Corinthian disunity. I think it's probably one of the reasons why I preach from this letter so many times, because you could substitute Corinthian disunity with American disunity. It fits us like a glove in so many ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, all things are lawful for me. This is what the Corinthians were saying. All things were lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So the word freedom isn't there. But I think it's there, and so I want to show you this morning. It's, it's not mentioned here, but there's a couple of words that circle around this. The first word I want you to notice is lawful. Lawful, that's a pretty 
familiar sounding word, but this is, this is actually not a very common word in the New Testament, this specific usage. It's mostly used in the Gospels, and this is related to the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees' argument that it isn't lawful, and a lot of the conflict with Jesus and the Pharisees has to do with what is lawful to do on the Sabbath, on the, on the Sabbath, okay? So that's where this word mostly comes up, but it's also used of the Pharisees. It isn't lawful for us to collect blood money. Think about Judas Iscariot. It isn't lawful for us, they say to Pilate, for us to kill Jesus, you need to do it for us. Okay, so they, they are constrained, they are constrained by this idea, this lawfulness. The Corinthians have articulated the free gift of the gospel like this, and this is how I would articulate it. Um, so they said, all things are lawful for me, but I think it's kind of a counter-Pharisee creed. I think a lot of us are familiar with this. We don't want to be Pharisees. All things are lawful for me is like, I don't want to be a Pharisee. In other words, in other words, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were under the law. They weren't allowed to do work on the Sabbath. They weren't free to crucify. We might, we might not articulate this or, or put blood money in the treasury. That's maybe not something we're looking to do today. But uh, they were under the law. We're not under the law. We're free. We're free in Christ. We're free. All things are open. They're lawful. They're lawful for me. So this word lawful, or another way to translate it would be allowed. I'm allowed to do this. It's tied to a second word, which is a play on words in the Greek. And the second word is dominated. Dominated. Lawful and dominated. And so this is a passive verb. It's not something that we are doing. It's something that seems to be happening to us in relation to this creed. It's a passive verb. Um, and it's about the ability to do an action, or in this case, not do an action. I'm, I'm, I'm being dominated, not so, much about, not, not so much about physical ability or my spiritual or some kind of a objective power to do something. It's about my inner disposition. I'm not, I'm not capable. I don't, have, I don't have the possibility or the freedom to do something. So we're... Looking at lawfulness is here in this verse. And then there's this idea of being dominated when we live by this creed, this way of looking at freedom, being dominated by it. And so here, here's what I think Paul's argument is simply here in this verse. And he goes on to unpack this for the next four chapters. And our lectionary throughout Epiphany is in these next four chapters. Here's his argument. If your definition of freedom is... I'm allowed to do anything that I desire. So simply that, if I'm, al I'm allowed to do anything that I want, anything that I want to do, and here it's, it's even more dangerous when we baptize this creed, when we say, because of God, or else because of my freedom in Christ, I'm free to do whatever I want. It makes it even more dangerous territory for us. But if this is my creed, I'm allowed to do anything that I desire, Again, it's probably more dangerous for religious people than secular people. But both, both of them articulate this. Paul's argument is that you will then, if this is your creed, you will then be dominated by that view of freedom. What you think is freedom will actually constrain you so that you don't have the ability to have any kind of joy or satisfaction in your life. 
So that's what I'm going to reflect on this morning. Hopefully, hopefully it's intelligible. This, uh, when I preach topical sermons, I'm very, I'm very overwhelmed because a topical sermon means you should know everything about the topic, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, but I hope you can stay with me. Uh, Peter Kraft, Peter Kraft, one of my favorite philosophers, says that the word freedom is in our modern day, it's a suitable and safe replacement word for an older word. And that's a word that we're going to reflect on quite a bit this morning. And this word is passion or passions. That's an old sounding word to us. So he says we use freedom in relation to the, our passions, which, which an, uh, a definition of this would be maybe uncontrolled emotion or my desires, or another way to say this is my pleasures or my passions. And we don't use this word very often in English anymore, except, except maybe to describe something that's good. A good sensation, right? This burning sensation, and we might think of the passion of first love. We, we might think of being passionate like that. It's good to be passionate, about someone, or maybe it's something. Maybe you're not in love, but you're passionate about your work. We hear this kind of phrase a lot. It's, what do we mean by that? We mean a lot of different things, but at the very least, it's, my, it's the thing that I'm focused on. It's my, it's my one thing. It's my sole obsession. I'm passionate. I'm a passionate about it. Now, in the New Testament, passions usually come with an adjective, okay? So, Usually, there is something that modifies this noun, okay? I'm getting nerdy here. Stay with me, okay? Passions usually has something that describes it. And here's a couple of the examples. Dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions. Or sinful passions. Or youthful passions. Or worldly passions. The idea is this. To be passionate is to be unstable. In the New Testament, to be passionate is to be unstable, sudden, uncontrolled intensity of emotion to, as Paul will say later in the next chapter, to burn with passion, to burn with passion. So this this intensity, this rush of first love, this high when you first drink alcohol, this high or any other kind of drug or whether it's legal or legal, maybe it's your first cup of coffee in the morning, okay? Don't be looking down on people. We all have felt this before. The joy of that first bite of sugar-loaded cereal or ice cream, and then like an hour later, you're like, why don't I have any energy? Like you crash, right? We know this high. To get a little bit, maybe a little bit more serious, following St. Augustine, maybe it's our grotesque fascination that people have when they see a dead body lying on the street or in the Roman Colosseum. Augustine laments this in his own soul. It's not just people out there, it's him. And maybe we might translate this to maybe an unhealthy fixation on horror movies or cable news. The way it gets ratings is violence, incites our passions, or simulated violence in movies or games or the list could go on we could think of these sorts of things even the thrill of victory when our sports team wins whoever it is whoever it is even that that sort of rush this passion the excitement of reading 
even a new novel. The experience of romance in its countless forms, passions, or freedom. C.S. Lewis, writing to a friend of his, a lifelong friend of his, Arthur Greaves, talks about this feeling. This feeling that, man, I, I feel like I'm way more interested in all of that stuff and not God. He laments that in himself. And, and they go back and forth in their letters. Over, over his whole life, uh, his best friend from his childhood. This is probably his longest friend, Arthur Greaves, other than his brother, Warney. Um, and, and Arthur writes to Lewis, and he says, maybe the reason why I love all these romances, all these pagan stories, all these myths earlier in my life, maybe it's because I had unfavorable experiences in church. Maybe that's why I don't like the gospel story, why my passions aren't aroused when I hear the Christian story. This is what Arthur surmised. Or he says, maybe it's because my nature is corrupted. Maybe it's just because I'm so sinful and I'm bent and I'm twisted that I delight in all of this other stuff and I don't delight in God. And Lewis says, I think you're onto something with both of those, both of those. But he says, and this, this is helpful for me, he says there might be something else, another factor. Lewis writes this, I think the thrill of the pagan stories and of romance may be due to the fact that they are mere beginnings. They're mere beginnings, the first, so you can think about the rush of first love, the excitement of reading a mystery story for the first time. Mere beginnings, I don't know what's going to happen yet. I don't know the plot. So Lewis says, you, see, you hear the first faint whisper of the wind from beyond the world. While Christianity is the thing itself, it's what is blowing, it's, it's the thing itself, but we feel this faint whisper. And no thing, Lewis says, when you have really started on it, can have for you then and there just the same thrill as the first hint, as the first rush of love. So for example, Lewis says to his buddy, the experience of being married, and Lewis at this point was far from being married, he was a single man like his friend. The experience of being married and bringing up a family cannot have the old bittersweet of the first falling in love. It's not the same as the rush of first love, but it is futile, Lewis says, to go on trying to get the old thrill again. You must go forward and not backward. You must go forward and not Backward, any real advance will in its turn be ushered in by a new thrill, and that new thrill will be the, the high that we keep seeking. So even as we press in, even as we don't try to live by this first glimmer of passion, this first glimmer of love, we're not, we're not trying to relive our courtship or our falling in love. We get little highs as we go further up and further in, and every one of those is a temptation to go back to, to go back to. So maybe that's helpful to you, maybe that's not. We have all kinds of passions and freedom. And it turns out that the Corinthian creed, all things are lawful for me, especially when this is religious, I'm allowed to do whatever I want because I'm free in Christ. It turns out that this is enslavement. Or we might call it in our modern day a pattern of addiction or a, or a 
dopamine cycle that we can't get out of or it doesn't matter what field we can think about this in a lot of different ways we are dominated by our passions our desires rule us we're chasing after highs we're enslaved by our passions and we call this freedom this so-called freedom so this is the water we swim in this this is as saint augustine says at the very end of his confessions the ocean of brackishness. Do you know what brackish means? Does anybody know off the top of their head? I didn't, but it's a great word. I'm teaching it to you this morning. What is brackish? It means unpleasant or salty, okay? So the ocean of salty waters or unpleasant waters, this ocean of brackishness that we, and this is at the end of his confessions, we need to be saved out of this, out of this. Augustine says it like this, the human race is profoundly curious. We're, we chase after our passions. We want to we chase the next little rush. And he says, its waves are tempestuous, this pursuit, with swelling and restless tumbling to and fro. And so I want to reflect a little bit on how to get out of this. How do we get out of this place of shifting Freedom. Like, if we think that freedom means I'm free to do whatever I want, how do we come out of this place? If we're governed and ruled by our passions, how do we, how do we find life? How do we get out on the other side? How do we get out of this ocean? Is it bad to enjoy a romance novel? This is a question I've been asking. Or to feel the rush of victory when your team wins? Are passions in general completely lost? or to be infatuated with first love, or to delight in catastrophe in the theater or in movies or whatever the expression of it is in our day. These are deep questions. Now, I've been reading a lot of the asceticism of the early church fathers, specifically the apostolic fathers this week, and Augustine is after them. He's after the apostolic fathers. He's definitely an early church father. But when I read these guys, I'm challenged. I'm challenged. These guys left everything and went to the desert. That's, that's, that, that's their answer. And I'm a, I'm a foolish American if I don't think there's not wisdom there. Okay? Like, there's something, there's something wrong with me if I'm so prideful that I'm not going to listen to their voices. To go to the desert or to avoid every excitement. And, and Augustine talks about even music. He's like, music makes me excited about the music instead of God. So I don't even want music. Maybe he's like C.S. Lewis. I don't know if he's sort of like an introverted, kind of like I don't really want to sing out loud sort of person. I, I, I get that in Augustine's writings a little bit. Uh, but even music he's sort of afraid of. And he, he's, okay with, he's okay with music in church as a consolation. Right? This is Augustine. Is that okay? My reflex is to scoff or to write them off is ancient asceticism or get rid of all of these desires and these distractions around me. Is that the answer? I deeply sympathize with one of my favorite theologians, and his name is Michael Reeves. When he describes this apostolic, the apostolic fathers as legalism. Okay, so that's that's a common reformed reading of the apostolic fathers i actually sympathize with reeves and it doesn't really matter if you follow john piper or john paul ii or james k.a smith there's different ways to critique this i deeply sympathize with what is 
more common for us, the modern theological method or methods that seek to reclaim joy or desire joy or reclaim and redeem satisfaction or delight in God. You guys are familiar with some of this. They, they seek to delight in God and not in earthly pleasures. So there's sort of a patristic way to handle our passions and our desires. And then there's a modern way to sort of baptize them all, right? To help them lead us to God. I don't know which way to go, okay? I feel like a Pharisee either way that I go. Uh, but for my money, the person that holds these two together the best is C.S. Lewis, okay? I've already quoted him a little bit. Um, on a personal level, but I want to get into a little bit of his theological reflection based upon this idea. He's the best place to start. He's, an, he's, a, he's a, basically a pre-modern in a modern world. He's, he blends them together. Uh, I love C.S. Lewis. Why do our passions dominate us? Why do they do that? Is God's love like a hurricane? Does heaven meet earth like a sloppy wet kiss? That's, that's maybe another way to ask. You guys familiar with that song? Oh, come on. You guys are killing me. Uh, I could sing it for you if you wanted me to. The way out is to contemplate God. The way to get out of passions, whether you're an early church father or you're a modern theologian who's trying to redeem our passions, both of them together... The way out is to fix our eyes upon Jesus. And that seems like a simple answer, but we, we need to think about, is God passionate? Is, does he meet us with a sloppy, wet kiss, as we articulate in our modern day? We're trying to sort of redeem the love song version of coming to Jesus or something like that. It's love like a hurricane. Is God passionate? And here's the simple statement in the history of the church, and I want to unpack this just a little bit more as I close. God is not passionate. Does that scare you a little bit? I want to talk about that. God is not passionate as we think of passions. This is the doctrine of divine impassibility. So if you're writing something down, think passions, think impassions, impassibility. God is impassable. What does that mean? Lewis says this in his book, Miracles. A mistake is easily made because we correctly deny that God has passion. So he says, the historic teaching of the church, the doctrine of divine impassibility, that God is without passions, he says that's true. He says that's true, but there's a mistake that's easily made when we do this, when we deny that God has, has passions. And with us, a love that is not passionate means a love that is something less. So when we say God does not have passions, we think that God's love is somehow less than my view of love because my love is passionate, right? We think of love as being passionate or passionate as being good. But the reason why God has no passions, Lewis says, is that passions imply passivity and intermission. What does he mean by that? The passion of love is something that happens to us. Us mere humans, as creatures, it happens to us as getting wet happens to a body. So if you jump in the water, a body gets wet. That's what passions do to us. They get us wet, and God is exempt from that kind of passion in the same way that water is exempt from getting wet. Right? We, we're outside of it, 
and passions happen to us like someone who's getting wet, but God is, he is not outside of wetness. He's water himself. He cannot be affected with love because he is love. He, he doesn't go up and down in love. He doesn't have that rush of first love and then the fall off. All things are contained in him. So Lewis says, to imagine that love as something less, something less torrential or less sharp than our own temporary and derivative passions is a most disastrous fantasy. So what does that mean? Let me translate that a little bit. It's a really big idea. God is so passionate. He is, in some ways, passions himself that he doesn't waver. He doesn't go in and out of passions. There's no intermission. So in other words, we're like a drug addict who thinks he can describe the rush of joy, that feeling of joy, better than someone who has done the hard work of making preparations to go on a really big hike and hikes all the way up a tall mountain and they look out over a beautiful vista and they, they're standing on the edge of the cliff and they feel this sort of rush, maybe even kind of like a fear. You stood, you stood on the edge of a cliff and you're like, that's kind of scary, but it's so beautiful at the same time. That kind of joy, we're like a drug addict who says, I got a little cheap high and I know how to describe joy better than that person on the top of the mountain who's feeling and experiencing joy itself in many ways. We're like children who think that we know joy because we won a video game or else we know more joy than someone who actually won a real championship, right? This, this is what I do when I feel that rush of satisfaction when I build a really cool Minecraft house. And I think I know how to build a house better than someone who's built a real house. It's just a pale reflection. We're like someone who is falling in love for the first time. And let me say this, there's nothing wrong with falling in love. There's nothing wrong with that first onset, right? That rush of spontaneous joy and emotion, the fluttering of the heart. There's nothing wrong with that. But we think that we know love better than Father David and Sarah. If you don't know Father David and Sarah, Father David, and you can pray for him. He's been battling cancer through chemotherapy for years now. And... They've been married for decades and decades. They've gone through all kinds of stuff, right? When I think of people who are in love, I think of Father David and Sarah. And it's like someone who has just started falling in love saying, I know better what love is than Father David and Sarah George. Our little passing, intermittent passions are nothing like the real thing. God is love. He is not passionate in the way that we think of passions. Lewis says this in another place, perfect love we know casts out fear. But so do several other things. Ignorance casts out fear. Alcohol casts out fear. Passions cast out fear. Presumption casts out fear. Even stupidity casts out fear, Lewis says. 
it is very desirable that we should all advance to that perfection of love in which we shall fear no longer, but is very undesirable, Lewis says, until we have reached that stage that that we should allow any inferior agent to cast out fear. In other words, we are so satisfied with small little pale reflections of the thing itself. We're satisfied with anything else other than the Christian story. We're satisfied with anything else other than God, and yet he has mercy upon us. He invites us back to himself. Later in chapter 7, verse 9, the Apostle Paul will describe how burning with passion, among many other things, can get us in trouble. To think that we have the thing itself in our pair of affections. But burning isn't really the problem. I don't think that's the problem. We're dominated by our passions. We're distracted from God by our passions, from all our distractions. And it enslaves us. We're like addicts going up and down, up and down, up and down. We're we're not coming to the source itself. We're content with everything else. We burn with passion when really we should be focusing on the burning passion. Consider this image from Revelation chapter 1. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. He sees a voice. I love Revelation. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in Revelation, this is pointing to the church, the light, the fullness of the church that displays light into the world. I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Be captivated by this vision. Hear this. He was clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I don't know which image captivates you. There's a lot of things going on there, but Jesus is the burning center. He's the source. We burn with weak passions as if we're like lighting matches in the dark. And here is this flaming fire who is standing in our midst. He's right here in our midst. He is the source of all heat and warmth and light and joy. And he burns brightly if we only have eyes to see. St. Augustine He ends his confessions reflecting on what we're doing here. We're gathering around the word and at the table. And he's specifically reflecting on the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And then he turns to baptism. He turns to holy baptism. We celebrated that last week. I don't want to talk about that too much. But I think it's really fitting that here is this mostly ascetic tradition that turns towards holy baptism at the very end of his confessions. And the confessions are the most published and most read Christian book outside of the Bible in the history of the church, okay? So this is a very important book. 
He points to holy baptism or this great sign, this wonder of the grace of God. Baptism is the true sign that God rescues us. We don't rescue ourselves. He truly saves us. But for Augustine, it's also a metaphor. It's also a metaphor and it's a pretty on-the-nose metaphor. But he says baptism is like the rush of being rescued out of the brackish ocean. You heard that earlier, the oceans of brackishness, these unstable waters of the world. And baptism rescues us out of this instability and puts us on solid ground. And this is where the confessions end. The land, the land, the solid ground. And we all in some way experience, and he talks about this rescue, this first of love, this burst of Affection for God at the beginning, like first love, this, ex- this thrill, this felt experience at the beginning of the Christian life. And then he says, it is in your word that we can leave the depths of the shifting sea currents and live on land. We can leave the flutters of our passions and our emotions and go to land. We can experience life not as the moving creatures of the waters, but as the living soul that walks on the earth. The soul for Augustine has, is the one that has been united to Christ in baptism. This is the living soul. Baptized through and out of the turbulent waters of all of our passions, which go up and down. They're turbulent and to and fro. We no lo- he no longer needs to wander about seeking after the rush of first love, Augustine says. We no longer need that sign. We no longer need that experience. We no longer need the miracles or those wonderful things. Now we can turn to a more mature faith, a true faith, that doesn't need a steady diet of signs and wonders. This is what Augustine invites us into. Into reflection and contemplation upon God. We don't need to relive or re-experience over and over again, although God is gracious, He gives us. He gives us little bursts as we go through the Christian life. You guys can think about many of these. We don't need to relive the rush of salvation at the beginning or the rush of the rescue out of waters. Think about our baptism. We, We get to stand firm in Christ on the solid land. So for saints in every age, the answer is, and the answer for us this morning, is to contemplate and be with and be in God. He's the impassable one. He's the unchangeable one. And from him is fullness of joy. Whether you're following the Apostle Paul, who invites us not to be dominated by our passions, or St. Augustine, or C.S. Lewis, or anyone, the stable land is Jesus. That is our hope. He is is the, the word on which the fixed land has its foundation. And he endured his passion to redeem our passions. He suffered and died for us out of our turbulent waters, out of our instability. He is the fullness of joy. He is the fullness of love in himself. This is what we're invited into. He doesn't fall in and out of love, thanks be to God. He isn't passionate. 
he's the source. And so I invite you to come to the source this morning. Come to his table. Receive him in the sacrament of Holy Communion. All those who are baptized, receive him, the unchangeable one. The fullness of all joy. The fullness of all of our little desires satisfied fully in him. We need him and we long for him. He is our hope. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you please stand and let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. 